Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhirasanan, CEO of a high-grade startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents and business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. This week on Startup Dads, our guest is Dan Hegarty, CEO and founder of Habito. Habito is a digital mortgage broker that offers a personal and modernized approach to the home buying experience. Dad has taken Habito to a 200-person post-series C startup and had three kids along the way. In this week's show, we cover what temper tantrums teach you about empathy, reading for odd inspiration, and which decisions only the CEO should make. As always, it's great to hear from you all, so do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at StartupDadsPod. Alternatively, reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santharasenan, and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. Just before I founded Habito, I'd actually only recently met my now wife, and we were actually living a pretty tremendous life. Like I had a proper job with a decent salary. <laughs> we sort of got together in our mid-30s, so kind of knew that the clock was ticking on fun in our lives and so got on as many airplanes as we could and did as many fun things as we could um and then i broke it to her that i was going to leave that job and and nothing (laughs) for an extended period of time um and then yeah the the period of dissatisfaction began as i basically become a so basically a person who sat in his pants all day uh, thinking big thoughts uh, about the future of the mortgage industry uh, without really having a job um and actually yeah in, in quite quick succession uh we i founded habitat we actually had our first child maybe yeah, maybe about 12 months in. So it was a pretty radical like series of life changes um, from patriarchal role of, of trying to create create a new business and, and be a leader of men, as well as trying to deal with this hand grenade that had landed in my personal life that was uh, logistically challenging. That's amazing. So I suppose setting up a startup, you actually have no idea what it's going to be like. So I'm just interested to know, did you kind of factor in what you thought your life would be like when you were setting up Pabito in terms of, you know, did you have goals in terms of people supporting you in the business or, you know, what your role would be like? Because being a first time dad and an early stage startup founder, boy, oh boy. Yeah, that's a stressful thing to balance. So I'd, I'd been through one hyper growth startup journey before. So I had some sense of the implications of you know, I was I was an early employee, so I'd seen those early days, and I knew how intense they could be. I had no idea how intense being a parent was going to be, but I, again, with sort of like I guess slightly idiotic enthusiasm, was so excited by the the prospect of what we might go on to build at Habito, and I was obviously so enthusiastic about my wife and the idea of having a family with her. But I didn't really give it too much thought, and even even now, as we just had our third, uh, and are dealing with the pretty intense logistical challenges of that. Um, you just kind of like, you, you know, you'll figure it out. Like as long as the will is there and the relationship is strong, like you're always going to figure it out. Yeah, for sure. That's, a, I think, probably a, a common theme of startup founders more generally. I, we just had uh, Chris Howard on the show, another startup guy, and we talked a lot about optimism and how optimism is the fuel for startup founders. I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on that and, you know, how you deal with the kind of bumps in the road when the balance of startup and dad life are tilting in opposite directions. It's a very strange existence. I mean, certainly, particularly in the early days, like it's just absurd fantasism, right? Like it's completely irrational self-confidence. And and I remember feeling really uncomfortable in those early days as I wandered around telling everyone that I was the made-up CEO of my made-up business and that we were going to transform the mortgage industry. It's not a great signal of, of mental health, to be honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I was quite conscious of it. Um, and so I think you're both simultaneously holding the idea that you may well be insolvent and doing something else in six months, or you might be 
on the road to you know something transformational for an industry. So I think there is a kind of a resilience and sort of mental plasticity that is totally required to do it. I don't think it's quite the same in parenting because the, the sort of the path is a little bit clearer, right? Well, I mean, the first one, you have no idea, right? You don't. <laughs> like, you know, I, w- I always remember just that as every month passes, you're like, oh, right. You see the other kids are starting to like walk or do new stuff. And you're like, oh, shit, like, I should probably try and get my kid to do that. <laughs> like, I'd, nobody told me what the plan was. <laughs> so, um, but it's much the same in, in startup life, right? Like, you can't lay out the strategy five years into the future. Like, it's reactive, it's creative, it's intuitive. I think much like parenting. For sure. You know, once your first child came along, did you institute any changes to the way you worked, the way you went about kind of running Habito to try and make it work? Or did you just take it as it came? Yeah, no, we just kind of rolled with it. I can't precisely remember, but I imagine I was the only person with a child in the company at that point. So it was it was definitely a bit of a shock to the system. But but it's funny, like we were in my kitchen for the first six months of the company. So, you know, our VP engineering was advising my wife on what color the tablecloth should be at our wedding. Like it particularly in those early days, like the the sort of the lines between family and work were were pretty <laughs> pretty blurred. Um and so actually when the baby came along, I remember like how warmly Rufus was greeted by everyone at Habito and it was it was a, a very kind of warm and intimate time. Like it was it was it was really pleasant. It was very similar for me, actually. I was the first dad in the team. And it was quite interesting for me because I think, you know, the transition from being someone who was able to work kind of all the time, right? And I think you you touched on this, you know, you need to have a super strong bond. I mean, it's generally a good idea to have a super strong bond with your wife. But (laughs) but I think, you know, it does help. But if you're a startup founder, I think you need to have an ultra super strong understanding there because, you know, I was able to work all the time. And actually, one of the things that I've found is that, I mean, you'll know this better than me. I can't imagine what it's like with three. But even with one, the nature of a routine just becomes so much more important and you know for the sake of your own sanity for your children's ability to sleep and I found that that was the biggest thing for me was actually this unstructured life where I could flex work when whenever it kind of I needed to I was like actually no you know what got to get home got to get Evie to bed now I'm interested to know for you you know you've uh, Habito's looks like it's going absolutely great post series C now how has your role changed as Habito has grown yeah I mean I always feel like every Every year, it's like I get a new job. Like the the sort of fundamental nature of my role changes. It's funny that you say about the routine with the kids. I always, you know, exactly as you say, at six o'clock, I'm like, I've got to get home for bath time. And I remember people looking at me like, I I think they thought I was talking about my bath. (laughs) Like I was very, like, very serious about my (laughs) my bath. I was like, no, no, (laughs) very serious about your bath. Um, It was such a foreign notion to uh, to some some of the guys I work with. Um, And and the one thing I would say is like, while I was going through that transition like watching my wife go through this transition, right? Like, you know, this incredible physical transformation, like maternity leave and like, you know, like the brutality of sleep deprivation. And I don't know, it's this extraordinary thing. Like you've been through it. Like the the baby arrives, it's like a hand grenade goes off in your heart. Like you are chemically like in love with this thing in a way that you could never conceive of. But logistically, it's absolutely catastrophic. Um, And everything that like made your life easy and all the like the little sticking plasters of nice holidays and dinners and brunches that like papered over the cracks of your relationship are all like gone and all there is is left is like the the brutal reality of caring for this new being and not letting your business fail (laughs) Um, and again i think i would be remiss if i I didn't say like how extraordinarily fortunate i have been uh, in finding um, 
a wife who was interested in procreating with me and putting up with the madness. <laughs> I couldn't find a co-founder, ironically. <laughs> Nobody wanted to co-found with me. <laughs> but I did find a wife. Um, two very difficult things to do, so don't feel bad. If you, one out of two is not bad, I think. I'll, t- I'll take it. I think, I'd, I think I got the more important one, I think. Uh, we'll see. Um, but to, I guess, sorry, to answer your question, no, the, the role changes so much. And I think particularly when you kind of multiply it with the effects of, uh, of COVID and remote working, like... I don't know, I used to get so much done just on the basis of like one-to-one human relationships, right? Like you would walk around the block, coffees and everything. Like we're now sort of getting up on best part of 200 people. And I find it weird. Like I'm in much more of a broadcast role than I used to be. Like I do pieces to camera six times a day. <laughs> I feel like a Blue Peter presenter, like more than a, <laughs> than a founder nowadays. And you do, you have to become a much more disciplined and better communicator. And you have to repeat yourself more often and return to the same messages more frequently. Whereas, yeah, I felt like you could be, again, like more, more intuitive, more um, improvisational in those earlier stages. And, and I don't think one is better than the other. I think it's just, just a transition that you have to go through and mature with. It's a fascinating thing, isn't it? We had a guy called Fred Destin on the show. He's talked a lot before about the fact that one of the jobs of the CEO is just to make sure that people stay on track with the mission of what the business is trying to do. And it's like, that's actually not an obvious thing. I think people assume that that's just, you know, a business has a mission and people will just do it. But actually that's just not how it works at all. And, you know, you have to work really hard to kind of keep people on track. And actually the act of stopping a business and pulling itself apart is a huge part of the CEO's role. And that's not something I think you think about early stage when you've got six people around the kitchen table, right? Almost unconsciously, you're just the connective tissue of the business, right? You aggregate the messages, you kind of translate between everybody. But at this stage, like if a CEO, you're still the connective tissue, then you've kind of failed in building out your management team. If I'm involved in everything, then like that, there's no way that could possibly work. And again, I've been fortunate to have much more talented people than me kind of, you know, like handling all the different parts of the business. But I find it quite a compelling problem in many ways, like how, you know, given that everyone in the business is just as distracted as you or I and has their own problems with babies that aren't sleeping and mortgage payments and are we going to move to, you know, York or not? And you're trying to like bring them back to this mission every day. And some days they want to listen, some days they don't. And so again, like just painting a compelling picture and sort of finding the emotional kernel of the business that you can keep drawing people back to, to kind of animate them. It's a really challenging problem. And I would say I spend at least a third of my time just trying to think about how to do it better. That transition from being the connective tissue of the business single-handedly to someone who orchestrates it is, uh, it's hard. Ajax is a series A, just post series A. Oh, nice. uh, and it's, you know, we're actually going through that transition now. We were a very, very small business when we closed our series A, 18 people or so. And it's just fascinating to go through that, you know, as we're 50 or 60 now, you know, it's like, wow, it's a different mechanism of messaging and it totally, totally relate to that. I always think of it as a grieving process. The further you get, like, the less you know everybody, the less control you have, the less visibility, the less shareholding you have. The the business that you were just falling in love with is always slipping away from you. And you have to learn to fall in love with the business that is emerging. But congrats on the Series A. That sounds sounds like you're doing exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah. It certainly keeps me busy, for sure. Thank you. Um, but I suppose maybe thinking about it the other way, has family life impacted the path you wanted to take as founder, CEO? So, you know, I think one of the big things that everyone talks about, particularly as you grow into the role of being a CEO, is just being super brutally aggressive with managing your time, right, as the most precious resource that you have. 
And I'm just interested, you know, you've got three kids now. How does that change your perspective on time management, where you want to put your efforts into the business, where your sense of leverage is? I remember the first Christmas after I had my first son, Rufus, and when you realize that, like, your holidays are now not holidays anymore. Like they're kind of the inverse, in fact. Like you're going to be <laughs> fully tasked seven days a week. Yes. And so you're like, all oh, right, so I'm going to need to find, find some time in my working day to actually think and read and learn and so on. So no, I think it does make you more disciplined, more brutal um, in a way. I think there's two things that leap out at me. The first is I think it changed the way that I relate to, to people, people I work with. I think it's funny when when your kid is going like ape shit in the park, like losing his mind over whatever, like you don't, or maybe sometimes you do, but mostly I don't look down at them and think that they're a terrible person with bad motivations. You immediately jump into their defense. You're like, oh, he's tired. Oh, he needs a snack. That's something that I actually try and take into my work. Like when I see people are underperforming, I'm not just like, oh, like you've got no professional dignity uh, or like you're fundamentally incapable. I'm like, oh, what is it that I'm doing? Or what is it that this kind of context, this company is doing that's limiting you? Yeah, I, th I think my kids taught me a lot about empathy and a lot about taking the best view of people rather than being quite as sort of rigid and, and sort of aggressive in my expectations for people. And on the time thing, though, a piece of advice I got a couple of years ago was that I should only make decisions that only I could make. And I thought that was really good because there are a lot of decisions that I really would like to make. Like I want to decide what we're having for lunch and what color we're painting the office. But in reality, like it is not clear that I am that value additive <laughs> in that regard. And I think really just trimming it down to where you've got like differentiated influence, like where you can really be impactful and make a difference. And also giving yourself room to think, like not just being completely caught in the kind of the operational tumble dryer of the business. Like now, for example, I block out Friday mornings. I force myself to read for an hour a day just to try and keep like adding new and somewhat randomized stimulus to my brain. Because like I'm five years into thinking really, really hard about mortgages, which is not necessarily a healthy thing for anybody. Um, so I think as your life becomes fuller and more complex, you think much more carefully about how you can make sure you are more impactful in the time you have. So my daughter, I mean, she's 20 months old, so she's listened to more startup audiobooks than any 20-month-old should have to. You know, different people have different perspectives on this about whether, you know, you should be really ring-fencing the family and work life and keeping boundaries. So I suppose it changes as your kids get a bit older, maybe. I don't know what your thoughts are on blurring or, or, or segregating. I think I have not been successfully disciplined in doing that. Like I still take phone calls on Saturday mornings. I try, like I'm pretty rigid with like not checking Slack on the weekends and that kind of stuff. But in reality, in those down moments, I find myself inadvertently doing it. I had this terrible kind of premonition that from my son's perspective, as he looked up at me, my face would always be blocked out by the shape of my phone. I just had this horrible image. So I really try and make sure my phone is never between my face and my son's face because <laughs> I don't want that to be how he, how he thinks of me. But I'm not. I, I, I wish I could say I'd do better at it. Yeah, um, if I'm honest with you, I'm absolutely the same. It's very difficult. And I think technology is optimized to be so incredibly ubiquitous you know, nowadays, which is a blessing and a curse, right? It's absolutely great that you can be super customer-centric, super responsive if an urgent message comes through. But it's also easy for something that can afford to wait to get in the way. The good news is that my daughter is such an, uh, this is a perverse statement, my daughter is such an awful sleeper that I have to have an absolutely military precision routine. <laughs> Nothing gets in the way. You know, I've learned to put my Apple Watch to turn off the screen of my watch oh, right? wow. <laughs> so she doesn't spot it. Uh, so there are certain forcing functions, as they call them, right? Um, 
yeah, I love your um, perspective on making the time to read, making the time to interrupt. You know, you build up a very strong, robust foundation on what you spend most of your time on, right? And that's a really good thing, a really good thing, but it also can become a little bit kind of uh, crystallized and making the time to read and making the time to disrupt your own kind of lines of thinking. I find myself when I do that, I've gone in and out of habit on that sort of thing, but just being so full of ideas after that, you know, that I know when I make the time, it's just such a useful exercise, but it requires a lot of discipline, I find. It freaks my team out. When I come in talking about like, the metaphors go nuts. So like, we need to grow our own miso. And they're like, what are you? Oh, you've been reading books on kitchen innovation or something. I'm like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's funny though, because even as, as you say, in the startup ecosystem, like there's, there's a real danger, even in the time that you make to look outside of your own business, that you end up reading the same things as every other founder, right? Like reading the same blogs, reading the same books. And I really like try and challenge myself to like go into stranger places and find like more odd inspiration, whether that's like, novels or carpentry or whatever it is but just try and like snap myself out of all of the the kind of reflexes that are kind of been built in this profession for sure and actually that's a really nice segue for me to ask you a question which i've been dying to ask the most and i'm sure you get asked this all the time but about your life journey and how you started off as a musician and ended up as a fintech founder (laughs) it was uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it didn't work out quite as I'd imagined. Um, yeah, I was a pretty largely unsuccessful musician. So I was uh, I left school when I was 16 to go and be in a little band, a little punk band uh, who got a, a record deal. And that led me on, yeah, about a sort of 10-year sort of meandering journey through being a session musician, for writing songs for other people, for being in some spectacularly unsuccessful bands, making some, in retrospect, quite unlistenable music. I was based out in Los Angeles for quite a bit of that. And then got to 25, spent most of my entire working life in rehearsal rooms and on tour buses and was kind of ready for a change. And I just split up with my girlfriend in the States and I moved back to the UK, thinking that I wouldn't be around for that long. And then ended up through a friend stumbling into um, the founder of a fintech called Wonga. Uh, and I ended up being one of the first employees there. And it was crazy. Yeah, like I thought I'd stay for a couple of months. I ended up being there for six years. And it, yeah, it turned out that I was a, a sort of closeted credit geek um, and that I've been living a lie uh, trying to be a cool musician. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was going to say I never look back. That's not true. I actually, I, I very much miss making music uh, and still do make quite a bit of music. But I was amazed by just the energy I got, like being surrounded by these like incredibly brilliant minds, like where every meeting was like someone running at you with a chainsaw. It was super intense. <laughs> and I, uh, I absolutely loved it. It was a, quite a violent transition and certainly not one that I would have anticipated, but one that I have enjoyed. That point you make, I think, is something that is talked about a lot within startups, which is one of the best things about working at a startup. Oh, actually, any great job is just the people, right? And actually just getting to feed off. I don't know whether, again, this is an entrepreneurial thing or not. It's just feeding off the energy of other really smart people doing really smart things. And actually, it doesn't really matter whether they're doing something that you can kind of relate to in particular detail or not. People who are great at their jobs, watching them be great at their jobs is an incredibly uplifting, energizing thing. And it's funny, like, not to be, it's a bit cheesy, but it was the one thing that reminded me of being in bands. It was like every now and then you would be playing with someone who was just at the top of their game. And like, it didn't matter what I did. Like, I was always like flamboyantly mediocre, but like, you just carried along on the wave of it. And it's the best feeling in the world. And it's exactly it's the same in startups, except there's just loads more people. That really hit me a few years ago was the, like the joy of any success that I've had 
like seems to be multiplied by the number of people that I shared it with. While you're grieving the fact that your startup is growing, like that's also the, the exciting bit. It's like you're going to get to be exposed to more energy, more talent, more like crazy thinkers and interesting people. And yeah, like it's, it's definitely the best bit, hands down. So maybe can I ask you a question then, because it's something that I've been puzzling with recently, which is how have you found adapting to a post-pandemic world where certainly it's felt to me much, much easier to crystallize that energy when you put lots of people in a room? right? HX was certainly at the stage where everyone was quite literally in the same room. And, you know, how have you found adapting that and accumulating that energy, you know, when fundamentally people are far more dispersed? To be frank, I found it really hard. I've got some quite old school opinions on this topic. Like I'm quite a working from work kind of guy. And uh, it was amazing, like when COVID first hit, because it was painful for us, like the housing market created, our revenues went with it. We had to furlough people. Like it's a super challenging time. But there was something about the way, like having this kind of common enemy and all going through this traumatic experience together was just incredibly powerful. Like I've never felt more connected with the team. And I felt like we we all reached a level of emotional honesty that perhaps we'd never even never found, even when we were in a room together. And it's been interesting though, like this year, as normal life has resumed a little bit, you know, that common enemy has faded from sight now it just feels harder like it feels harder to exactly as you say to kind of crystallize that energy in a room like find clarity in our common purpose and kind of get going together find momentum so we've been back in the office uh, a couple of days of the week and i've found that yeah like really really energizing and compelling and that's always going to be fundamental to our culture it's funny like i don't think there's any way i could have built habito as a remote company and i'm not saying others won't but just in those early days, I think you do, you have to kind of breathe together, like the feedback loops, the communication needs to be instantaneous in order for you to really leverage the benefits of being a startup or of being an insurgent. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what the future holds. And clearly, like, it looks like it's going to be hybrid shaped. But for us, at least, it'll always be fundamental that we can find each other physically and take those opportunities to kind of realign, point our energy in the same direction and build stuff together. I think there seems to be quite a marked difference in businesses that were created and remote first from kind of birth, so to speak, where the kind of status quo, the baseline assumption, the quite frankly, just the preferences that people who started, right, are different, I think, to businesses who have gone from, you know, hybrid or heavily co-located to fully remote to a kind of hybrid again. I think the only thing we can be sure of is the experiment is just beginning, I think. Within one company, we have such radically different proclivities, right? We've got some people who just cannot wait to get back. Others who like think I'm insane for suggesting they should ever come back. And so then you end up in doing what you always do, which democracy does to us is it brings us to the middle. And so you end up losing people with extreme opinions. And like, that's not what we want, right? So it is, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a puzzle that we're all, I guess, trying to solve. And I think, again, you've got to listen, you've got to be empathetic, you've got to be experimental. I think we'll, we'll muddle our way through. Well, Dan, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids? Do you know what? Like, again, like this maybe sounds a little bit cheesy, but I think the biggest change for me, and I've kind of touched upon it a couple of times already now, is like I think from being somebody who was quite sort of introspective and focused on my ideas and what I was going to create in the world and the impact that I was going to have, to sort of becoming like more interested and more sort of more understanding of the power of others and the joy that I could derive from watching them be at their very best. Yeah, I, I hope that's something that I could transfer it to my kids. So like, I mean, just not, like I didn't go to, I didn't do my A-levels, I didn't go to university. But I think there are a lot of boxes that, that everybody feels like they need to tick on the way through. 
and achievements that will validate them and make their position in the world worthwhile. But actually, being in a startup, ironically, has made it just incredibly obvious to me that it's what you can find in other people and the things that you can do with them that produce the most kind of permanent sort of joy and I think, you know, ultimate satisfaction. So I don't know quite how I'm going to explain that to them because at the moment they're pretty focused on treats and their toilet <laughs> habits. But I think if I can teach them to find joy in others, perhaps in the way that I find joy in them, I'll have done something good. That's a super awesome answer. And as your business grows, learning how you can propagate energy so it multiplies through the business right, I think is so, so important. Because I think people talk a lot about founders who have got very high energy levels and they can be charismatic in a room and they can disperse that to a small number of people around them. That's not a scalable not a scalable strategy, you know? And I think your conversation earlier about broadcast mechanisms and all of that are a key part of it. But creating culture where, you know, people finding joy in others, helping each other succeed, you know, one of our values at HX is to be kind. And what we say there is, you know, take the opportunity to lift people up and avoid the opportunity to pull them down, right? If you can take that and you can apply that, like the business kind of sorts itself out, doesn't it? It kind of charges its own energy. I love that. You know, I just, the, the truest thing that I've learned about management is that everything is a problem of leadership. People mistake that for thinking that, I mean, my leadership, like leadership can come from anywhere in the business. It doesn't even need to be hierarchical. And so I think just concentrating on exactly like a, an empathetic and reciprocal culture and giving people room to lead from wherever they are in the business uh, and the confidence and the space to do that. It just, it makes it so much more joyful and ultimately so much more successful because you're right. Like, I mean, you seem extremely charismatic, but no one man is charismatic enough or woman <laughs> to lead an infinite number of people. No, for sure. And I'm sure that my team will have a variety of other <laughs> words for me uh, uh, if they were listening to the, the show. So brilliant. Well, look, I think that is a wonderful, uplifting way to nearly wrap up the show. But before we go, Dan, I'd love to ask you for your startup shout outs. So we're in the section where we shine a light on some entrepreneurs or businesses in the startup world uh, that we admire. Startup shout outs. Yeah, so there's one um, startup that I'm fortunate enough to be a, a very small investor in called More Human, and who actually kind of tie in quite nicely to this theme. So Emma and Duncan are building a business focused on empowering communities and community events. So I guess in a universe that's kind of dominated by Eventbrite and Facebook events and so on, they're taking, I think, a much more human-centric, less corporate approach to allowing people to find each other and actually really like directly address some of the issues of loneliness brought about by the pandemic. So go and check out uh, More Human. That's a super cool idea and something I think the world really needs <laughs> right now as we move back towards more human events, so to speak. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, look, Dan, that was awesome. I feel like I got a good lesson on things. And while I'm not absolutely sure at the moment, while my daughter still refuses to sleep, whether <laughs> number two and three are even possible, uh, you've made me feel a little bit like maybe I can do it too. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Before you go, is there anything that we should know about Habito? How can we find out a little bit more about you right now? Do you want to give us a little bit of a plug? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you are buying houses or need mortgages, uh, we are here for you. We are a mortgage broker. We are a home buying service and we're also a mortgage lender doing a number of hopefully interesting and exciting things in that space. Particularly if you're a parent and short on time, this is an excellent way to solve probably the biggest financial uh, problem of your life in a, a simple and digital way. So you can come and check us out at habito.com. Um, if you're interested in my ramblings, you can find me at Daniel P. Hegarty, Twitter. Um, and yeah, we are, we're here for you and, uh, and looking forward to helping. 
Well, Dad, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was a cracker. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod. 